0: Hey, do you want to know how to go from consulting to building products full time? Well, then I have a treat for you. Rob Walling is on the program today. He's behind products like Hittail and really helps start a movement of micropreneurs, solo founders who launch their own products. This is part one of our conversation where you'll hear his story, so stay tuned. Hey, welcome to Product People, the podcast for people who build and sell their own products. My name is Justin Jackson. That's at amijustin on Twitter. And I've got to tell you, I'm a big fan of our guest today. It's always fun when you can have a guest on the show for whom you're a fan. Rob Walling is here to talk about launching a product. Rob is a big advocate of the solo founder philosophy and has launched a number of products His current product is uh, Hittail at Hittail.com, and he's just recently announced a new product that he's preparing to launch called Drip, and you can see the landing page for that at GetDrip.com. On top of all that, he blogs at SoftwareByRob.com and podcasts at StartupsForTheRestOfUs.com. Welcome to the show, Rob. It's a pleasure to be on here. Thanks for having me, Justin. You're welcome. Now... I wanted to start with your history um, because you have it seems I, I don't think I even listed a third of what you actually have in terms of total products. Uh, how did you get into building products in the first place?
1: Well, getting into products came out of this this desire to own something, to actually have equity in in something beyond this consulting firm, which is worth you know, the, the price of the stamps that I had on my desk at the time. I mean, consulting, it doesn't scale, it has no no real long-term value, and I I looked down the line when I was about 29 or 30 and realized that I didn't want to be running that consulting hamster wheel when I was 50 or 55. It just it didn't appeal to me at all and I realized that uh, the only way to do that is to get some ownership in something. And so I had actually looked, I had invested in real estate for a few years thinking that, you know, that I could build up kind of a, a stream of income and, and equity in homes and that actually worked out reasonably well, but it was very, very slow going, There's a lot of competition and I didn't have a unique advantage, you know, hmm. to, to kind of getting out ahead of people. I didn't have, you know, a bucket of money or just any, any real advantage over others and so I eventually um, realized that my, my skill was in software. Startups, and so I, um, I really headed. You know, once I had a, a one success with that, showed me that I could, you know, duplicate that success, and um, that was that was where the initial desire to get into products came from. And and what was, what was that first success that you had? The first success was a product called .NET Invoice, and I still own that. And it's it's pretty simple. It's web-based invoicing software. It's written in .NET, Microsoft's you know programming stack. Um, it's downloadable software, so it's like FreshBooks is software as a service, whereas uh, .NET Invoice is something that someone buys, downloads it, runs it on their own server. So this the market was actually you know decent market before FreshBooks came out. Um, since then, .NET Invoice still sells to a small niche, but it's definitely not you know, not the, the product success that it once was. But it does uh, sit there ticking in the background. It's one of
0: my, I think I have about 10 products now that, that I sell. Oh my goodness. Okay, and with so what was the genesis behind .NET Invoice? How did you get that idea? .NET Invoice was actually, I acquired it when
1: it was in alpha, So there were these two developers who had who knew how to write code, and I had launched uh, about I think five products over the past five years, five or six years. Um, This is from 2000-ish, about 99 until 2005, and I had launched uh, like a social news site. I had just spent tons of time and a big chunk of money. Trying to find a niche, trying to find something that that worked and a product that brought in some money, and and nothing was working, and so I was on some forums, and it was it's SitePoint, and these guys had posted that uh, they had a code base and they had a few customers, but they didn't know how to market it and they were looking for a partner. So I got in touch and I let them know I wasn't interested in partnering, but I would consider buying the whole code base, yeah. and as it as it turns out. Um, I did buy it, and it was the code was not in great shape. It had a lot of it had like showstopper bugs and all kinds of stuff. Um, but I took it from there and and basically brought it through to beta, brought it through to launch, and then you know built it up from there using using the marketing approaches that I still use today.
0: Interesting. Now, can you tell me how how much did you pay for that code base? I paid eleven thousand dollars. Okay. In, in retrospect, and, does that seem like a good deal or a bad deal?
1: It I overpaid for it a little bit. I mean, it seems like a good deal because if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would be where I am now. But on its own, it was not a, not a great purchase price. I probably should have paid closer to about five or six thousand. But there were a couple things. There was some discrepancy in the revenue and the previous month it had sold several hundred dollars worth and um, I didn't really know how products were valued and you know, now I would, I would certainly have made a lower offer, but at the time I looked at the product and it was probably three to 400 hours worth of work and I was billing over $100 an hour, so in my head I was like, man, this thing's worth 30, 40 grand at least, um, you know, it's, it's a deal to get it at that, at that price, but that's not, that's not the right way to look at it at all, yeah. the right way to look at it is how, how big of a market does it have you know, and how does it have recurring traffic and do they already have happy customers, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and did you when you were initially uh, valuing that product were you thinking this is going to be worth something because you saw that there was a cre- a clear market and a clear, you know, product market fit or were you thinking were you just looking at the code and the the work that had been done and and thought, you know, there's a lot of value just in the code. I'm that's what I'm buying.
1: I liked it because it did have a market. It had a clear market. Um, the The whole concept of product market fit didn't exist back then. It was 2005. Mm. Um, but I did know that they had they had basically pre-sold a bunch of customers, and these customers were kind of clamoring for it, and were really, you know, it, I don't know, interested in it. And they had sold, I think, like $800 the previous month, and they kind of represented that that was what it sold every month, but that they, you know, they that wasn't the case. It had really been like a, a pre-launch sale that had brought in that much revenue. And that's a, a rookie mistake I had made, not really taking the time to verify it before then. But I, I saw some value in the code, but to be honest, I really did see more value. And, and today, when I make an acquisition, the code is actually way, way less valuable than whether or not the product is actually making money, whether it has, like you said, problem-solution fit, product-market fit. Those things are are by far more important uh,
0: in my book today. Interesting. So if you were going to start over, you would be thinking about marketing before you were thinking about code. That's correct. Yeah, because um,
1: because having a a big chunk of code that does something doesn't really help you unless it does something that solves people's problems. And not only that, because building something people want is not enough. You have to build something people want and be able to market it at a cost less than what you get back from that customer during their lifetime, and that's those are the two key things that you're looking for. Solve a problem, be able to get it in your customer's hands for less than they will pay you back during their lifetime.
0: Interesting. And why do you think why do you think that we get that wrong so often? Why do we um, start with so for a developer? You know, a developer might be thinking I'm going to start with code. A designer might think I'm going to start with a logo and uh, a business person might think, well, I'm, go- I'm going to start with a great idea. Why, if, if the the true value of a product is in, will people pay for it and can I make enough money off of it uh, to pay for all the, the marketing expenses? What Why do we often get that wrong? I think because we're builders.
1: Like we're, most of the entrepreneurs you know, whether they are developers designers, or designers or business folks as you said, they're creators and we want to create things and that's the really exciting part is the creation. And so if you come up with an idea, you naturally love, tend to love your own ideas and you think they're genius and you just want to get to the fun part which is creating the logo, writing the code or
0: fleshing out the idea as the business person would do. Hmm. Yeah, so let's let's go back to your story. Uh, after .NET Invoice, what what was your next big product where you you had some success?
1: After .NET Invoice, I realized that. I didn't have to build everything myself. That was the first time I'd really acquired something and had any success. And after spending literally hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of hours over the previous five years launching things, I realized that given that I was making good money as a consultant and I was booked full time, that perhaps I could think about acquiring some products just to... To cut down on my time to market, right? I didn't want to spend, launch a product every 12 months because that's what I'd been doing, just spending all this nights and weekends coding. And mm-hmm. I wanted to, to shortcut that avenue. So, what I did for a couple of years was acquire things. And I acquired code bases and products from people who didn't really know how to market them. And by that time, I had just enough success that I was just a little bit dangerous. And I purchase, let's see, the next couple ones that I bought, one was called CMS Themer, CMSThemer.com, and that's okay. still around. And it was actually a theming service, it was kind of like pr- productized consulting, so it was, uh, you could come with, this was before, kind of before a lot of the PSD to HTML services, and so you could come with a PSD file, Photoshop file and I had some folks on the back end that I outsourced to and I would just take the PSD and we turned it into either a a WordPress theme or a Drupal theme or Joomla and then get it back to them and the margins were fantastic Um, and my goal at this point to be honest was not to build you know uh, this fantastic 100-year company my goal was to make just enough money that I could stop consulting that was a goal because because I, I was working so I was working full you know full time during the day, I had a wife and a kid at home and a mortgage, and then I was doing these products on the side and so that meant four plus hours a night that meant weekends, and I just needed to get to the point where I could quit consulting and I knew that things would open up in terms of of time and you know even revenue uh, because once I had so much more time to invest in them, I knew I could grow them faster so that was the goal, and I was buying purely based on where I thought I could get these products to. Hmm. CMS Themer was one, and that was a stepping stone for me. It was not, and I knew it. Um, I knew I didn't want to have CMS Themer for ten years because it was kind. It was still on that border, right, of kind of being a little bit of consulting, hamster wheel-ish stuff. You're still doing project management and, and dealing with clients, but it was a great. Thing that I owned, I think, for about a year, and it helped me help me quit the job and then uh, quit the consulting gig. And then once I replaced that income, then I sold CMS Themer, and and I did well with that as well with the sale.
0: Interesting. What um, you you mentioned that you had you were married and you had uh, a kid and uh, a mortgage. Uh, there's it seems that a lot of the startup talk we hear is about single young white males uh, what there there and there's a lot of talk about you know maybe folks that are married and have a mortgage and you know have a family maybe shouldn't get into uh, to building products what what's your take on that? Well, you're right, there is
1: the kind of the stereotypical kid that's just out of college or you know, maybe in college or in grad school and, and has tons of time to invest into building these sh- kind of shoot-the-moon product ideas. It's it's maybe the Y Combinator um, fallacy, I'll say. It, it That's not a bad thing. If I was 22 and I wasn't married and I had all the time in the world, I probably would, you know, move to the Silicon Valley, try to raise funding and go for a moonshot. It's like, what do you have to lose at that point? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, there are so many of us. There are so many of us that are... 27 between 27 and, and 50 years old who are developers, designers and and business people and who do have that wife kid and mortgage and still want to be creative and still want to do interesting things and build things that we have ownership of things that we are proud of and that's not just what your client tells you to build and the client then walks away with the ownership you know it's like building something that's going to you know last your lifetime potentially outlast you and that Group has turned out to be very, very big, and I didn't know that that group existed when I I really started blogging heavily about that in 2006, 2007, and I was just looking for other people like me who were who weren't going to move to the Bay Area, who weren't going to raise funding, and who weren't going to kind of forgo the rest of their lives going after this lottery ticket uh, of, of a startup. And as it turns out people there are a lot of us and that's why you know we started the podcast we have a conference now I mean there's thousands you know, There's probably four or five thousand um, listeners to our, to our podcast and there's I don't know twenty-something thousand people subscribed to my blog so while it's n- certainly not as large as the kind of go big startup group there is definitely this idea definitely resonates with uh, you know the idea of, of starting the startup it resonates with a lot of, of
0: people and what was your what was your strategy so you acquired.net invoice you were having some success with that you were still consulting how did you how did you talk to your spouse about that how did you say you know I'm going to try this thing which i'm sure at the time seemed ridiculous uh, because the way people earn an income is they go to work and they get a, a salary or if you're a consultant there's at least a, kind of this direct line uh between the work I do and the the income I earn what are what what how did you talk to your your wife about that and what are some strategies you think for families that are thinking about you know maybe getting into building products that's actually a fantastic question and one I'm not asked enough to be honest
1: because your spouse or significant other is going to be critical absolutely critical to your success if they don't have buy in and they're always down talking your idea or the fact that you're working on products, it is going to make it ten times harder for you to succeed. So I'm I'm glad you asked that. Um, my my wife and I had talked many times since '99 when I first said I'm going to build something on the side, and she had set up some pretty good boundaries. She said as long as it doesn't have like a major um, majorly impact our lives in terms of, you know, you don't bet the farm on it, so we're going to go bankrupt or lose the house, as long as you're not working so much that we can't go out and have fun, and, you know, that you don't spend time with me. I mean, we kind of set up some, some boundaries that I stuck within, and she had seen the failures that I'd had, but she'd also seen that some of them succeeded enough that she knew I was making progress. So she was able to watch that journey, and in 2005, after five, six years of doing it, when she saw me have this for success and, you know, dot the invoice back then, it started bringing in uh, 1000 bucks a month and then 2000 bucks a month and then 3000 bucks a month. And this was in addition to, to consulting income that was already more than than I needed to live on. I showed her that and said, look, I finally think I'm figuring this out. I'm going to kind of take a run at this and I am going to work more. I'm not going to risk everything, but I'm going to put some more time in because I think if I get a nut, what if I get two more of these going like, two more products going like this, it's not what I make consulting but i can at least quit quit consulting for now and then replace the rest of the income later and she was willing to buy into that and i but it was only because i'd had the success right if i had talked that pipe dream in 99 she it, it wouldn't have made sense and it would have it wouldn't have made sense for me to do that so she was actually a good reality check for me um in 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 the fact that i had to convince a partner right i had to convince kind of a co-founder if you think about it to buy into my idea and and then moving forward i had successes pretty consistently after that
0: and it, it became an easy easy choice for her mhm and i'm i'm guessing that part maybe in part 2 we'll talk about the strategy for choosing a good idea and a good product um, because I, I imagine, like you said, you know, between '99 and 2005, you were working away on these ideas, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of spouses that are in tech were always working on side projects, and and you know sometimes our spouse can get the feeling of you know this this is uh, kind of a nonstop side project uh, parade, you know when are we going to have something that is actually uh, you know has some success. So maybe we can talk about some specific tactics um, in part two. Sure, sounds good. Um, let's. So CMS Themer, what was after? What was after that? What was kind of the next big thing after that? Around that time, well, not, you know, there was no
1: big thing really. There were all. It was a collection of small things, and that actually became my approach: was to collect a lot of small. Products and build a portfolio of them. As someone once used the term. Uh, he has his own personal conglomerate because <laughs> I just collected these random assortment of of apps. And one, the next one was just BeachTowels.com. It was an e-commerce website that sold beach towels.
0: Okay, how did how of, did you get the idea for this? That
1: again, it was it was up for sale and it ranked high in Google. It ranked on the first page of Google for a generic keyword, which was beach towels, and I knew that I could get it ranking higher. And at the time, it wasn't selling anything. It wasn't. It just was a splash page or a landing page, and if, well, it was a couple pages of HTML, but there was no buy now button. Yeah. So I knew if I got it, I could put a card on it. I could find a drop shipper, and and see where it went. And I genuinely didn't know: is this going to do a thousand dollars a month in beach towels? Is it going to do twenty thousand a month? Because no one had any revenue on it. So I paid, but I didn't pay very much. I think I paid a thousand bucks or something, and it was worth the risk for me to find out. Huh. And that was it, and that was a lot of hustle, right? I put in a ton of time, and in the end, it wasn't actually that lucrative. The, the site peaked when I owned it. It peaked somewhere around three, gosh, I think it was $3,000, $4,000 a month in sales, but it's, it's hard goods, and so the profit margin is small. So yeah. I only made maybe netted. I had a VA who was processing orders. I'm mean, gonna had all this stuff going on, but I learned so much. I learned a lot more about SEO. I learned how to have a VA do things, how to automate stuff. That was really the first time I'd done that. Hmm. Um, I took away all this stuff, even though it only made maybe 500 a month. And again, I used that to leverage. I, I sold that and used it to leverage into the next products, and uh, which. From then on, really, were software. I decided to stick to digital products after that because the dealing with returns and physical products was not not my cup of tea.
0: Yeah, and and again, back to you know maybe your your personal and and family life. So just BeachTowels You know that does sound like a lot of additional work. Um, you know, from that point on, did you really start to examine? You know, here's the purchase price. Here's what I think I can get out of it, but also here's. How much time this is going to take? I did. I did have a better concept moving forward because that was my
1: third kind of rehab, right? I did not invoice CMS themer and just Beach Styles, and I had a much much better idea of how much time an idea would take to take from where it was to where I wanted it to be. Um, but by this time, to be honest, I had already I had enough income that I started cutting back on consulting. And I started consulting four days a week, and that freed up just enough time that it didn't impinge on my time with my family and then I think I eventually went back to three days a week and then you know eventually cut it once i had I had enough revenue
0: yeah, okay so the uh let's go on to the what was the next thing after just beach towels There were a couple more. In the
1: meantime, I mean, during during this time, I realized I was, you know, having some decent success with this, and I had some stuff that I wanted to pass on, information for other developers, and so I blogged more about it. I wound up writing a book on the topic, which I was doing more to communicate, to answer a lot of questions I was getting on the blog, and to communicate this to help other developers. That actually turned into an un Kind of an unanticipated income stream. The book, I talked to a couple publishers and decided I wanted more control they were willing to give, and that wound up. I wound up self-publishing it, and it has sold ten thousand copies over the past two and a half years. And so, <laughs> that was another, you know, one of those. It was like, oh, the harder I work, the luckier I get, is the phrase I use. You know, <laughs> it was it was a bit of luck. It was unexpected, but I wrote a book too. I did spend the three months to do it. So. Um, that was kind of a uh, a nice, ad, you know, add-on success to this. Um, the next two software products were Wedding Toolbox, which I still own, and that helps uh, engaged couples build wedding websites. It's just like Squarespace for wedding websites. And then Apprentice Alignment Jobs, which is a job board for uh, power line electricians. And that, that I bought that one mostly based on. Um, existing traffic, and she didn't really know how to monetize it. So I was just improving the funnel on that.
0: So you talked about launching this blog and uh, then launching a book. And that's something that a lot of, you know, product folks are trying to do right now is, okay, I'm going to start blogging more. I'm going to start an email list. I'm going to uh, write a book. Can you talk about what kind of, um, Uptake? Did you have when you started blogging? So, you know, you know, when you started, you started at zero visitors, zero views per month, and and how quickly did that did that did those numbers grow? Not very quickly at all. It was absolutely painful.
1: Um, I started blogging in 2005, and there was no, you know, there was no Facebook, no Twitter, there weren't social social sharing sites at all. So I think Dig was just kind of becoming big. And after six months, I had 66 RSS subscribers. After six months of blogging, three three days a week. And after a year, I had 250 RSS subscribers. So I, I measured everything by the number of subscribers, not by the number of page views. Because I could get a big hit and go to the front page of Dig and get 40, 50,000 visits in a couple of days. And that was exciting, but it didn't translate into any type of long-term readership. Hmm. So after a year with 250, I was discouraged. But I knew that long term, this is this is what I do. I I do things and then I share them with people. I mean, that's just how I've, I've always been. I, I enjoy helping others. I also enjoy kind of forwarding, you know, pushing our whole, the conversation forward. And so as I discovered this thing uh, of both acquiring products, which I've never heard anyone talk about, acquiring smaller software products, and having a portfolio of, of products, and going from developer to basically entrepreneur slash marketer, I realized I had three kind of unique viewpoints and I think that's a critical piece if you're thinking about starting a blog, writing a book, doing any of that, you do have to have something unique to say because everyone's doing it now. You know, And so if you don't have something unique to say and you just want to blog say about starting your, your company, that's that's been done. That was really interesting in like 2004 when people mm-hmm. blogged about starting their company because no one was doing it, but if you don't, if you're just saying, oh, today I'm trying to get this company started it's like it's not interesting enough yet
0: you you need you need a voice and you need a unique uh, kind of a unique angle on it so when once you decided you know i have these three unique perspectives and i'm going to share these perspectives did was it still kind of a steady climb in terms of building your own personal audience or did, did you see some spikes do you get to a tipping yeah, point i did get to a
1: tipping point and to be honest Early on, between 2005 2006, I blogged a little bit about entrepreneurship, but it was more about being a corporate developer and, I don't know, consulting. I mean, it was just kind of, I was trying to find what it is that I really like talking about and what it is people wanted to hear about. And once I figured out, once I did start having those successes as, as a founder or an entrepreneur, I, that was my tipping point. And it was in 2007 that things really started ticking up. And I think I started 2007 with about 2,500 RSS subscribers, so it was like two years to get there. And then I doubled that, and then I doubled it again in a year. So I I doubled it to five in about a year, about nine months, and then I doubled it to 10 over the next year. So you definitely see there was growth. Now, Twitter also came out around then, there were some other things that helped that. But uh, oh, and Hacker News was a big one. Like I, all my posts started going to Hacker News. So there was there were other factors that played into that. But to be honest, the entrepreneur community and the founder community is um, it is a tight group, and it was it was just a more focused niche than what I had before, which was like I said, blogging about consulting and you know, kind of being a corporate developer and just politics and project management and that kind of stuff. It isn't
0: I don't think is as interesting to people. And how much did your, you mentioned real life experience. So having, Mm -hmm. once you had some actual product wins under your belt, Mm -hmm. did you say that contributed to, you know, the number of people that were kind of actively seeking you out and becoming regular readers, et cetera? Oh, absolutely. Because then I had
1: it wasn't just talking theory at that point i think the my first big post that really went viral and drove a lot of folks to to subscribe to the blog was called the inside story of a small software acquisition and this was a couple years after i had purchased dotnet invoice but i basically detailed that entire process that i've you know just told you about was um buying it, rehabbing it, all the thought process i think i may even made it a three part series okay and, that drove a lot, and this was again a couple years after it had actually happened but I finally felt comfortable documenting it and just putting it all out there this is the first time being pretty open about what I was up to. Um, I'm much more open now just because I'm more comfortable doing so but that was a big thing because it's a unique story no one's ta- you know, no one talks about these small software acquisitions. Instantly I got emails of people asking me to guest post on their blogs some fairly successful blogs in the niche were, we're just interested in hearing what was going on, you know, with this with this guy who no one had ever heard of at the time, and uh, just that I was doing something that that was in fact unique. I wasn't just talking
0: about the theory of doing it; I just I had real numbers and real experience. Hmm. And maybe in part two we can talk about the tactics behind that because there's this idea it, it's the the old uh, uh, chicken and egg or horse and cart problem, which is uh, how do, how do you launch a product successfully when you don't have anyone to launch to and uh but on the other hand the the launches uh creates helps create an audience, so maybe we could talk about that uh, in part two let's sure. let's kind of close off this part with um talking about hit tail how did hit tail come about and uh and yeah what what's the story behind that sure i it was about eighteen
1: months well maybe about two years ago um I realize something about myself that I enjoy working on things really hard and focusing and building and creating and then I enjoy stepping away. And so that's why I do have this portfolio of products is because I don't want to be, I will never, I don't think I'll ever be the one product guy. You know that I own this same product and that's my identity for the next 50 years. And so about every 18 months I'm expecting myself to get restless and that I need to figure out a way to basically. These days, I, I automate. I either uh, have a I have a bunch, bunch of virtual assistants who are able to take care of products, or I now have a product manager who does a lot of work for me. And so, I realized this a couple years ago and started looking for my next app, and I was either going to build it from scratch or acquire it. And HitTail is an app that had been around since 2006, and I had been a customer of it since then. And what it does is it looks at your website's existing traffic, and it pulls out the keywords that you have a really good chance of ranking for, that you're not already ranking well for. And so instead of getting 500 keywords in Google Analytics, you get maybe 20 keywords um, it it will give you that whole list of 500, but then it will give the, you the 20, and it will say these are the suggested ones, the recommended ones. And so I had used that for blog post suggestions, for SEO content, for all kinds of ideas over the years, and the site was having issues. It, it hadn't been maintained very well, and it started having outages every other month or so. And it had a four or five day outage in early, I was about mid 2011 and i decided that i was going to email the owner and i had cold emailed people in the past to acquire apps and t- typically never received a response and sure enough uh, you know it was a sweet spot and it, again it was harder i worked the luckier i get it it was just a, it was lucky that she was willing to sell it um it had just kind of grown long in the tooth and so we negotiated for a couple months via email and we decided um you know decided it was it was a good move and so i closed on that in September of 2011. Yeah, that's right. September 2011. And that was all fu- I mean that was all funded with it wasn't a huge acquisition in terms of cost and it was all funded ter- from my other apps. So it's not like, you know, it's comes from some trust fund. It was it was building up over time and having these apps generate enough revenue to then acquire the next thing and, and go a little bigger.
0: Hmm. And and can you give us a picture of you know your, in terms of revenue, what do each of these products kind of provide to the the overall pie? It's a very wide range.
1: Um, some of them, I mean, these days I don't bother. Well, I I kind of I mean, some of them are, are as small as you know a thousand a month, and some are as high as in the fifteen to twenty thousand range. Okay. Um and that's kind of <laughs> that's as wide as it swings and it dep- it all honestly depends on the month too. Some apps do have huge months in, during Christmas time some have huge months during tax time you know
0: based on which app it is um, hmm. but that's that's the idea and how do you organize all of this do you it, how do you how do you manage all of these these different apps yeah, it It sounds overwhelming,
1: but if you think about that I've built this over the course of seven years. It has been a very slow and deliberate move, and I have I have essentially brought on help. I don't have employees, but I have, in any given month, I have between six and eight contractors who work for me. Some of them have worked for me for five or six years. Some of them work full-time, 40 hours a week. <laughs> Others work maybe five hours a month on an as-needed basis, but they range from, I have three virtual assistants. I have a product manager who is a jack of all trades, designer, developer, uh, DBA, you know, does everything. I have a DBA, I have a designer, I have a CSS slicer. These are all people that are kind of, I just have relationships with. And I can email and say, hey, need something really quick by tomorrow, you know, this 30 minute project, and they'll get it out for me. And then others are doing recurring tasks. A lot of the VAs handle my tier one email support. Handle all the things that you'd imagine would take a lot of your time. I have put those into processes and essentially outsource them. I don't want to. I'm not a big like, hey, I outsource my life, you know, on that bandwagon, but I genuinely have a suite of people who, you know, work 300 to 400 hours a month total um, that allows me to do this because I obviously I couldn't, you know, I don't I don't even work half that. <laughs> I don't even work half
0: of 300 in a month. wowzer that wraps up part one of my interview with rob walling we've got so much so much coming up in part two that you're going to want to tune in for next week including how to hire a va how to do marketing and how to build your personal brand tune in next week in the meantime check out productpeople.tv And also check us out on iTunes. Please leave a review because it helps our show get noticed. Talk to you later.